So the love that they share, the wisdom that they have, and the hospitality, um, they just make you feel right at home so quick. And so we're so thankful. Amen. I love their family, David and Sheena, beautiful girls, Caitlin, honor all of them. And I honor the bishop. And JJ, you guys are the best. Yes, yes. Amen. Praise the Lord. September 7th is quickly approaching us on the calendar year. But looking back into the last century, we find a significant date. In fact, it would be 1940 that would be etched into the history of England forever. That date was the first day in which the lightning war, as signified by the British press, would be immortalized, if you would, in that country's history. The lightning war would better be known in our verbiage as the Blitz or the Blitzkrieg. It was an eight-month bombardment that the Germans used in order to bring Great Britain to its knees. The last major city, if you would, between them and the conquering and the conquest was London. France had been defeated and now they were on their way to the island. And so in wisdom, they thought we will never win by sea, but we can win by air. And so the Blitzkrieg began, the Blitz, and for 57 consecutive days and nights, the Germans dropped bombs all over the city and the surrounding cities. The devastation was seen in the numeric number of how many people were killed, how many people were wounded over those 57 days. The city was in just a state of almost utter catastrophe. From London all the way to the surrounding areas, from the military outposts to the airports to the strategic points of the city, London was devastated. And the Germans thought that with the 57 days, or within those 57 days, that it would have been able to bring London to its knees. <laughs> but something happened in that city that they did not prepare for. In fact, it was so unique that Londoners today have a certain stiff-necked reputation by what they did during those 57 days. They started off by hiding in shelters that had been made and prepared for them. They would plant those smaller shelters in their garden areas if there was room and they would invite their family and close friends. There was larger shelters and they would stay in there sometimes days turning into somewhat of a week in order. It was cramped, it was bitter, it was cold, it was damp, it was wet, it was dark. The bombs would would uh, just destroy areas around it, sometimes even destroying the bomb shelters that they had hidden inside. But what took place during those 57 days did not shake London, but rather shaked the Germans, or shook the Germans. 
In fact, at 57 days, Hitler decided that he no longer should, should keep his attention on the city of London, but rather to divert his attention towards the nation of Russia. London was not going to fall. They have analyzed why and how it was possible that London would not fall. It wasn't that the buildings did not fall because they did. It wasn't because there was mass destruction because there was. It wasn't because death was not upon that city. It was there. There was something inside of those individuals that they stated to themselves. We will not succumb. It was an attitude that had arisen inside of those individuals that said, we will never, quoted by their leader, on sacred ground he would state, never, never, and he keeps repeating the same, never, never, never give up. And that was pushed inside of those Londoners to such a point that what should have brought devastation to that nation, in fact, brought them together. Schools went back into session. Teachers would be getting and gathering their children and they would walk past uh, the exploded parts of the, sea, uh, of the city streets. They would walk past the buildings that had caved in, taking their children to makeshift schools, yeah. hospitals, singing, concerts. Life began to resume. So you're saying after the 57 days. No, I'm saying during the 57 days. It happened eight months. Germany would keep periodically coming over London. But they became so indifferent that they did not change their daily lives in order. When they heard the bomb raid alarms, they would walk in amazement, wonder where they were going off. But they would keep on walking to the marketplaces. They may have kept their kids a little bit tighter and a little bit closer, but they would not get off of their beaten path, if you would. London would survive. The strategy of the Germans was a development of thinking. I mentioned this to the hyphen group this past weekend. The strategic nature of bombing airplanes when they took flight and they began to realize that they would be able to utilize them for war. Not only for war, but for massive destruction, quick victories, airplanes became essential. They couldn't do it with the short range, so they had to build these fortresses in the skies. These B-52s are the likeness of that. They would place them, they would be weighing 70,000 pounds or whatever it was. it was. It was astronomical how big these things were. And they would take them long distances. And at first they would come in and lay waste to a city, thinking that that would break down the nature of their thirst for survival, but it didn't work. Next, they would strategically cripple that nation in its war 
capacities. They would hit the plants. They would hit the ammunition factories. They would hit the airports. They would hit the strategic capital buildings and try their best to bring down the military bases in that nation. But it didn't work. And so the third and final thing that they did is with these strategic bombs, they would go and they, they figured out that we could no longer waste time trying to destroy the entirety of the city. There's no reason to do that. And so what we will do, what we will do, is we will lay waste to the will of the city's people. You see, when their bombs are dropped in strategic locations, such as military outposts, it does something like 9-11 did. It didn't devastate the nation, it brought it together. It didn't lay waste to the nation when the t Twin Towers fell, when the Pentagon was hit, when the plane landed or, or crashed in, in, in Pennsylvania. No, it brought, it brought the nation together. It put it at arms. It, 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 it binded us together no matter what race or no matter what nationality or no matter what culture or background or heritage or history. It didn't matter what side politically you were on. No, because when we were attacked, we all were attacked. Amen. And so they realized in order for this to take place, in order to cripple the will of that nation, they could not just just strike the heart of its future in military. They had to strike the heart in daily living. And so what they would do is, is they would bypass the, the ammunition factories and they would hit the water plants. They would bring down the water towers in the city. They would hit the electricity plants. They would lay waste to the bridges. Making sure that transportation was almost nil. Devastated France. It devastated some of the smaller European nations. Because what took place is the fact that the people started saying things like this. I don't want to be inconvenienced anymore. And I would rather be controlled than inconvenienced. I would rather our nation surrender than our livelihood be messed with. There's no reason to push and fight if we cannot live our lives the way that we normally live our lives. But something in those Londoners that said, no matter what the devastation is, we will grow no matter how dark the night we will survive no matter what is thrown at us we will not surrender something is arising in the people of God an attitude that the people of God are getting in this last hour it's not just defiance of government it's not defiance of laws of the land 
but rather we look at the spiritual side and we realize what is trying to be accomplished and because we have our eyes set in the right direction we are starting to click our heels together put our shoulders back put our voices in the right direction and begin to speak some things into existence The darkness is not going to cripple the church. No. <laughs> In my spirit, something is waging. There is a war that's going on that God is trying to push forth inside of each and every one of us. And I am calling on those that are feeling that, that sense of, of, of unrest and uneasy nature. God is trying to, to push me into something deeper. Yes. Yes. Bombs are falling all around. Oh yes they are. It's devastating to watch a nation crumble. It's de devastating watching the morality of our nation crumble. It's devastating seeing the things that I never thought that I would see come so quickly and so easily in my lifetime. But here we are. But I tell you what's going on inside of me. And I feel that this is what's going on inside of the church. Is that we are saying to ourselves, we know that the time is short. But no matter what bombs are dropped, and no matter how grave the disappointments, we will never, 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 never give up. We will pursue the mantle. We will pursue the double portion. No matter what is transpiring and what is taking place, we will pursue the mantle. It is in the beginning, and I'll move swift, that God created the heaven and the earth. What we find at this point in time is the earth is without form. It is void. And darkness is upon the face of the deep. There's chaos. There's a lack of order. There's a lack of systems and processes. There's no time. There's no such thing as a day. There's no such thing as, as, as a formed matter that, that would be able to, to house. And so God looks down inside. And as the Spirit of God hovers, the voice of the Lord uh, echoes throughout. And let there be. And when he said those words, uh, all of chaos had to rearrange itself in order to submit itself to the plan and the mind of God. And, 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 and let there be light. And he didn't have to conjure something up he speaks it into existence and there is light but I find it amazing that light did not it 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 did not eradicate darkness it gives balance to it now we understand the principles of science you go in a dark room and you hit a light switch it eradicates darkness. I understand that. But when we're talking about the system that God created, God said they cannot coexist with each other, so I'll separate them. But there will be a balance. Day will have to give its way to, to night, and night will have to surrender to the break of day. And the cyclical process keeps going and going and going and going. 
God does not say because I, I because there is darkness there I'm I'm going to eradicate it by light no but rather what he says is I'm going to merge the two together and there's going to be a balance if you would there's going to be a system if you would and now because of light and because of darkness there can be growth can I say it one more time just get growth during the day it takes the absence of light for there to be a longing for it there's got to be an absence of what is warming this world what is showing this world what is giving revelation to this world for there to be a longing for that which and God said that there is going to be light and I'm going to separate it. And I realize that the, 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 the cyclical process of creation, it gives way to the growth that we so enjoy. There is companionship supernaturally in light and darkness. We want to eradicate the darkness, but there's something about the darkness that brings forth the longing for the light. Are you hearing what I'm saying right now? Woo! When there is no light, oh, there is such a longing for it. I believe it was Shackleton's crew that was what that was uh, stuck down there in, in the in the Arctic region of the South, Antarctic region, and, and 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 of all the things that they suffered from, they would they would write in their diary that it was the worst of all worst was the the absence of light. It wasn't the it wasn't the lack of food. It wasn't the severe cold. It wasn't the isolation or the hopelessness. It wasn't being away or the loneliness. No, what would the worst of it all was the fact that when the seasons changed and the darkness would would settle in, there would be days and weeks and possibly, if I remember correctly, even months with no light. And the darkness took a hold of them in such a way that they longed for the light. And if we look at channel 10 or 6 or Fox or whatever it is, uh, you're going to see something on there. You're going to start noticing that the world is ever growing into a state. And if we're not careful, we'll just push ourselves further away from that. And I understand that there's got to be holiness and separation, I believe, in those things. But what I am saying is that this is an hour that the world is going to long for truth. And I know that it waxes worse and worse. And I know what kind of generation we live in, Brother Shostrand. I understand that they're haters. I understand that they're perverse. I understand what the Bible says in the words of Jesus Christ. But his book says that as a promise in the last days, that I will pour out my spirit. Upon all flesh, the greatest hour that we are living in, this is it. The greatest hour for the church to exist, this is it.
And I encourage this body of believers, when you sing, when you worship, when you pray, when you reach out, when you shine your light, do it with an understanding that as the darkness creeps upon our world, there will be a longing for light. I want it so bad. I want to see it so bad. I got a taste of it the other night. Our Oklahoma camp meeting a gentleman that goes to our church. His name is Travis. And Travis fell off of, of, a, of a scaffolding about 15 feet. So it wasn't a tragic fall, but he fell. It's where he fell. He fell straight onto his back. He busted his discs out. Three major surgeries in a period of three years. Travis has not slept in a bed in three years. Travis walks with assistance. Travis can barely get around. Inconsistent to church, as faithful as he can be, but inconsistent because of the pain level. They want to put a stimulator. They want to do this. They want to fuse his back again. They just keep wanting and wanting and wanting. It's as if it's, it's trying everything, but rather he is growing worse. And the call was made. I'm telling you, God is real. And the call was made at a district camp meeting. And I was on one side of the, uh, of the tabernacle and Travis was on the other. And all of a sudden I saw his cane was down. And he's trying to walk. Sister Shoster, and he's dragging his leg. Uh, he was just screaming out in pain. And somebody's got their arm underneath him. And, and, and just people are just praying and surrounding. And he's just dragging his leg three or four times across the altar. And I thought he's got to be in so severe, in such severe pain. No, but all of a sudden, my God, it was all of a sudden. He is dragging this leg and it picks up and sits down. Right in front of my eyes and a thousand other people, Travis took another step and another step and he looked up and he jumped for the first time in three years. And that step boy took off and kept dancing at the front. It is a dark time, but God is getting ready to deliver like he never has before our church it's just a small church we're doing the work of the Lord trying our best we're trying to go into every avenue of ministry we can we're reaching out we're giving away you know how it is you guys do a great job we got in the prisons before COVID we saw some great success we were in the women's pods and they would come out to a chapel area and we saw several people get the Holy Ghost. It was amazing. COVID happened, shut everything down. They only let a couple people into the city jail. This is, it's actually the county jail right there downtown. Only letting a, a few churches in, four or five churches, our church was called. There's a, new, there's a new chaplain there and our church was called. Would you like to come back? Oh yeah. We'd like to come back. We got in there. We're not in the women's pods. We're now in the men's pods. 
It was my wife and the two leaders of the prison that were in there, two ladies and one man. 30-something people, 35 people in there that night. They begin to speak very simply, not preach, speak. They sing a little bit a cappella, they begin to speak. It's a dark world. <laughs> but there are people that are hungry. I'm telling you, they are hungry. They just haven't intersected with this thing yet. And when they do, I'm telling you, come on somebody. I'm, I'm talking about praying prayers that will blow our neighbors away. I'm talking about the boldest prayers we have ever prayed. This is the hour for the church to step into that type of, uh, 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 of, of position. Square our shoulders back and say, we're going to live on. We're going to exist. We're not adjusting our life because the world is ever graver. No, I don't care what agenda they have, what political side they're on. We are not adjusting our stance. They begin to sing. They begin to speak. And at the end of that, my wife, who is a sergeant in the prisons, I'm telling you, she walks in there and she begins to declare a word over them. And 12 people are, are baptized with the gift of the Holy Ghost on the first time we were back. Can I tell you, it's a dark world out there. But there's a church. But there's an answer. Before she leaves, she said, now listen, I want to tell you something. If they come and baptize you this week, well, we don't know if they're coming. But if they do, she opened the Bible. She showed them. You don't, you don't be baptized in any other name but the name of Jesus. No other name. They said, yes, ma'am. She said, if they come and they try to baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, you say this. You say, nay, nay. But only in the name of Jesus. On that following Monday night, we went back into the prisons. The story was dictated at the very beginning. And one man said, yeah, I got a statement. I'm going to say something. Yes. They came to baptize us on Saturday. The chaplain brought in a baptismal tank. Oh, that's fantastic. And he said, I got in the water first and then 12 of us or 11 of us was behind us, behind me. 11 of us were there. So me and 11 others were there and I got in the water and when that chaplain said, whatever his name was, I now baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son. He said these words and I quote, nay, nay. <laughs> and the chaplain stepped back. He said, but only in the name of Jesus Christ. And the chaplain looked back at all those and they said, we all want to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. That same Monday night, another 10 were baptized with the gift of the Holy Ghost. That's 22 in two weeks and 12 baptized. There is a harvest field. It may not be the expected one that we have, but he's reaching now to the highways and the byways because he's saying to himself, I will have a bride. There may be a dark day, but there is a revelation that's going to give it balance. 
truth of the, the matter is, is that most plants grow faster at night. The truth of the matter is that there is a process embedded inside of those house plants that you love so dearly that you put by the window so they'll grow, that they'll get light. But it's in the night, ladies and gentlemen, that those plants start sensing the absence of light and they start stretching themselves further, ever slowly towards the light. There is an absence of it and they are in search of it. And this generation, God has designed his church. God has designed his people. God has designed his system. Are you hearing what I'm saying? God has designed it. God has the answer for it. God has the answer for it. And it is, is his body. It is his church. It is the people of God. That is me. That is you. That is this church. That is our quest. That is our journey. That is us, ladies and gentlemen. That is us. We are the balance. It's Christ in you. You are the balance to the darkness in this world. You are the balance to the darkness that is surrounding us. And if I'm reading this book right, where sin doth Bound. He's getting ready to set an army loose. He's getting ready to set an army loose. I'm telling you right now, God is going to set an army loose. God is going. He has equipped us. This church has a hundred plus years of prayers that have been bottled up. And when and what and how do you think that God is going to pour it out? What's going to take place when a hundred years of fasting and faithfulness and prayer and apostolic truth is poured into a city? My God, I want you to stand to your feet right now. Elijah sought a word from the Lord. He sought a word from God. In fact, the Bible declares that from Mount Carmel, he went all the way to Mount Sinai. That is a span of well over 200 miles between the two. Some say closer to 300 was a traveling distance. And in 40 days, he travels that distance on foot. We talked a little bit about that this morning. Take and eat. Arise. The journey is great. But here's the concept that I love so dearly is when he went into that cave. The last time an individual on that same mountain went into a cave, the desire was to see a greater part of God. Show me your glory. So whether or not that's the desire or the reasoning, 
that he went in that direction. It seems ironic that at a low point in his life, he sought for a fresh word. We need a fresh word. We need a fresh word. That's what he was saying. We need a fresh word. I need something fresh. On Mount Carmel, the fire came. Out Mount, on Mount Sinai, the fire came. But on Mount Carmel, God was in the fire. On Mount Sinai, he was not there. On Mount Carmel, he ran down that mountain as that rain would shake the very ground. On Mount Sinai, the great quake that took place, God was not in the quake. He's looking for something fresh. And God in wisdom says this with a still small voice. What are you doing here, Elijah? Why are you here? What are you here for? Oh, I've been jealous for you. Oh, you don't understand. I, 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 me, 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 my, my, my. And God says, well, there's thousands of others that have stood the path that you've stayed. Have never bowed their knee. You're not alone, Elijah. So then once again, he says, Elijah, what are you doing here? And this is what he tells him to do. And I paraphrase, this is not the Amplified Bible. But this is what he says. Go back the way you came. And the answer that you're looking for is in a field. The answer that you're looking for is in a field. Your future is in the field. Because in the field, there's somebody that's traveling behind and plowing the earth. In the field, somebody's working. In the field, somebody's waiting. In the field, somebody is, is anticipating. In the field, somebody is willing. So the answer, your future, Elijah, lies in the field. And he slaps his mantle upon the one that will follow him and take the position of that seer in that day and hour. And Elijah says, at the last four stops, Brother Shostran, he says, stop, Terry, right here. Stay right here. And as he turns, Elisha says, oh no. Uh, I tasted the man. I felt what that felt like when you put it on my shoulder for a second. <laughs> I'm chasing something else. And it's not just the fact that I'm following you. Mm -mm. I am following my future. So I'm not just here for you, Elijah. Although I am submitted at this time. I am here for my future. I am here for what is beyond you. And so from Gilgal, they traveled to Bethel. And from Bethel, 
They travel to Jericho. And then from Jericho, they get to the Jordan. And it's at the Jordan that Elijah takes his mantle off and he slaps the Jordan and it splits across and when they walk to the other side the chariot comes and all of a sudden it takes him up in a whirlwind God's in that whirlwind and Elijah screams out my father or Elisha screams out and the mantle falls And he picks that up and he wraps that thing around his neck and he walks himself to the Jordan River because Elijah said why are you following me why are you pursuing me why are you pushing towards this why won't you leave me and he said I want something from you well what do you want I want a double portion I want a double portion of your spirit and what you've done in the past I want to do more in the future I want to bypass you and I want to step into the position of a firstborn I want a firstborn's portion that's what I want in this generation I want the firstborn portion in my generation. And he says, it's a hard thing what you're asking for. Nevertheless, if you're there, you're going to get it. And that's all Elisha needed to hear. And as he approached that Jordan River, he took that mantle and he said, now where is the God of Elijah? And he slaps that Jordan River and it parts for him as he walks on by. And I'm telling this great church on the last bit of fumes that I have in my voice that this is the time and the hour for the people of God to start seeking the position of a firstborn. I don't care how dark the day is. I don't care how the situation may seem. I'm not following after this for you only there's a part of me that has a desire for what's on the beyond Elisha doesn't know what the double portion really looks like but the stories he's heard from the past it's good enough to say I want more than that I desire more than that and we're looking past at a hundred years and we ought to be saying something like this I want a double portion of it. Come on, where's that spirit? Where's that spirit at? In the middle of an hour that we're living in, where's that kind of spirit?